Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. And something that was even a bigger drive. The United States, you know, it only been, you know, free, so to speak, from from you guys <laughs> for just a couple of decades. You can have it. And uh, <laughs> yeah, anymore. Um, and and again, we're also looking at the time here where, you know, Joseph Smith. We had the War of eighteen twelve, and the War of eighteen twelve didn't stop in eighteen twelve. I mean, it was in eighteen fourteen when. You know, General Major Robert Ross came in through the Chesapeake Bay, marched north, burned and sacked Washington, D.C., then pushed his way up north to Baltimore. Um, and so that, that there was a lot of animosity. And and so the, and in the American kind of psyche, there was a need to disassociate from this heritage of of you know, wonderful elocution and rhetoric of this kind of highfalutin style that was oftentimes shown uh, through this um, inherited British thought and mindset as being the ideal form of speech. And so a lot of people were deliberately going against that speech. And they were preaching to people in a language that was really common. And it was it was very shocking you know, because they're used to these kind of more formally trained, like the, the guys coming out of uh, Harvard and Yale and uh, uh, some of the uh, places where they were trained, there was still this movement, there's still this tension. And in the places where the Smith family grew up, um, the upper Connecticut River Valley, or just the whole Connecticut River Valley, there were there were people who had moved away from this real super formal style and were doing a lot more extemporaneous style preaching. Hiram Smith, uh, Joseph's brother, when, when he was at Moore's Indian Charity School, which had been kind of shortened to Moore's Charity School by that time, he was learning this semi-extemporaneous style. When he was at school there, they were being trained to be missionaries, not just missionaries in general, but missionaries who would be going out and teaching the Native American um, populations. So that was kind of at odds with this more formal, stiff style that was happening over in, you know, the major cities in Massachusetts and and along the northeastern seaboard. And so there's a lot of tension. So that was their way of saying, you know, we're we're going to... Um, preach and we're going to do it in the shoulder rubbing jargon of the local tavern and and we're going to reach people and we're going to reach to their hearts because we're speaking in the language that they understand with their hearts not just the language they understand with their minds and okay. we're not going to quote latin at you either you know and yeah so that's what they were doing and so there was the, there was this tension so some people would speak and there were exceptions because when people are praying you it kind of would pull back to this. You're speaking to God, so you want to be as formal as you can. You're not trying to have an argument with the formal guys. You're speaking to God. So in prayers, uh, you would start to see. And it's just like in the LDS um, church today. When when people start to pray, they switch into this language of prayer that's not the same as the language of everyday speaking. Oh yeah, if I was and, if I was giving a blessing to someone, I became the most well-spoken individual in 
the county, you know. Whereas yeah. Yeah. immediately after I'd given them the blessing, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know. So uh, we'll watch it yeah. for you later. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's like you just switch. And I'd say that that was in respect of my priesthood or what, whatever it is. It's the same reason, you know. And yeah. You do what you do. So a good example, coming back to these heads, uh, as something that I enjoyed in your book and presentation was Abraham Marshall's short notes. Uh, I'll just show these mm-hmm. on the screen. And the, the reason I yeah. thought these were amazing was because on this small page, now, if you bear in mind, this small page is a small pocketbook. One, mm-hmm. two, three, four, five sermons, possibly the beginning of six at the bottom, um, and half of yeah, maybe six sermons on there. Plus half of two others. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. If you so preachers how... would carry around these notebooks and they would premeditate on sermons. And it's ones they had done before, ones they wanted to do. And usually it was based on a scriptural passage. And then they'd just give this shortened version of a scriptural passage. And, and then they'd say, I'm going to break it down to so many elements. And each one of those heads might have subheads to them. But then they could have it in this tiny slip of paper. And then they would create these notebooks if, if they were organized. Some weren't. They're scattered all over the place. But some of them, they would organize them into these small handmade notebooks where you just take some paper that you got at a store, fold it over, sew the binder, and then you put these in. And so you could have a you could have a small notebook that you can slip into your coat pocket or something that would carry a year's worth of sermons. And these are sermons yeah. that could last for one to three hours, depending on how much they wanted to extemporize on it. And I think the important thing there is how much information you can squeeze down onto small pieces of paper. Um, mm-hmm. We'll we'll look at that in a little while. But here, in one of his sermons, it shows the I guess the the individual parts of yeah. what he's looking at there, and that's his whole sermon. Right. And so what that is that the verse from Acts Acts four verse eleven, and head of the corner. This is just you know four words from the entire verse where they're talking about here is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he's kind of the the foundational keystone of everything else and so that's what he's preaching on he only needs those four words head of the corner to remind himself of what the scripture is and what the central meaning is that he wants to preach about and so the the one two three four five these are the subheads of that one heading how christ is the head and so how is christ the head christ is the head because he's the foundation foundation of the church foundation of the gospels foundation of of what we learn bears all he bears all of our sins he bear he's done the atonement he's done all these things for us unites all he's the one who through the love of god and in his teachings he brings us all together into community defends all strengthens all um all uh deposited by it beautifies all and etc and that that little ampersand in the sea and etc now that is abraham marshall saying i have more ideas here but i have enough down on my notes that i'm going to remember the rest and i just give myself this little thing saying so there's more to talk about and he's just alerting himself to the fact that he has more 
And he could take that and he could expand it easily into an hour long sermon or longer if he wanted to. Okay. So if we start to look at timelines then, and mm-hmm. we've, we've Can I established... pop in real quick? Yeah. Just pop in real, say something. Going back to the Book of Mormon, when we look at those headings that are there, and they're not over all the chapters, um, it's not consistent. And that's also another thing that I believe points to oral performance. Because if it were a written project, you would have had those headings over every single book and every single major chapter in the original. But you don't. And so that means that someone sometimes thought to put them in and sometimes didn't think to put them in, even though they're following that is the structure of dictation. And so that also points to oral performance. But the other thing is, and I go into more detail on the book, that is those headings, those outlines are exactly the same thing that the um, preachers would use as kind of the summary of mnemonic cues to then go ahead and extemporize a whole story, yet still follow a structure. And so the Book of Mormon, is it's right there out in the open, the techniques that were used. Not only can we see it in those opening headings, but we're actually told it in Jacob what it is. So it's telling us how it was put together. And, and uh, that's one of the biggest points I wanted to make And with this one. With Joseph Smith, in his sermonizing, he even references the fact that he is a semi ex sorry, I'm looking down at the word so I don't say it wrong, a semi extemporaneous um orator when it comes to one of his most famous sermons, the King Follett sermon. Yeah. Um, I mean he, he says it explicitly yeah. what he's doing there. Uh, where I don't remember the phrase, but he's saying I'll I'll speak the best that I can and the spirit's gonna lift me and carry me through something to that effect yeah and i think this was this was joseph smith's technique as well and he would go on tangents so you can see that he's following an outline but he's constantly going out on tangents going out and then coming back going out then coming back and that's something that in written text uh people call resumptive repetition or repetitive resumption you can say it either way and um and so people say well that's evidence of a written text but in fact that's actually what joseph smith does in his spoken and that's why that's why i went into detail on the king follett sermon one of the reasons is because you can say see the same type of pattern of following a structural outline yet having the freedom to extemporize and go on tangents yet always coming back to that outline so we know that that's the way he preached that's also the way um, that we see um the progression of ideas within the Book of Mormon, where they follow an outline, but then they go off on these long tangents. There's a lot of information that's not in those opening headings, and then it will come back to it. And so it's the same type of approach that's going on. Okay. Now, uh, just show this in the stream. So moving forward towards the timeline, I think this scripture that, um, sorry, uh, the scripture that we've got here is very important to bear in mind. So Doctrine Covenant yeah. section 9, 8 to 9, and the, the part here, but behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind Then ask me if it is right. And that goes back to the whole fact that these things aren't just coming on the spot to Joseph. He understands that the process must be studied out. And that that's the process that he goes through. That's the process that he is advising here 
in Doctrine and Covenants. Um, and that brings us to the question that the church holds up the timeline as miraculous because it was 60 to 65 w working days of, of dictating the Book of Mormon. I think um, in one of the videos, Russell M. Nelson, he jokes by saying, um, have you ever had one of those uh, challenges in the ward where they say, read the Book of Mormon by Christmas and Christmas is four months away? And you have to read six to eight pages a day, and it's it's you know really difficult to do. <laughs> At which point, I think if a book's hard to read because it's six to eight pages a day, it's not a very good book. But he, he says the miraculous thing is that Joseph <laughs> dictated the book in half that time, and I, I think yeah, we've got something to say about the timeline. Yeah. Um... In terms of speed, well, there's a couple of things there. I'll, I'll go to the study it out in the mind, then I'll go to the speed of dictation. Yeah. Study it out in your mind. Now, when this was giving, uh, he, he's criticizing Oliver because Oliver said, I want to translate, and then he couldn't. And yeah. they don't tell us exactly what he was doing or what he was trying. Some people have said that this message meant that Oliver was using the uh, one of his divining rods and trying to determine the translation through that, and that this doesn't apply to the seer stone. But I don't see evidence for that. Um, I agree with Ann Taves that when we're looking at how this is an exposition, this is the closest and earliest exposition on how the spirit works in relation to translation that's essentially given in real time of the translation itself. And, and it's talking about inspiration in, in general. It's not saying, you know, when you're using this object, this is how it works. When you're using that object, that's how it works. And so this is this is something that is the closest thing we have to Joseph Smith telling us what was going on at the time that he was actually doing the translation. And so when he's telling Oliver, Oliver, who's coming into this without any preparation whatsoever, he's saying, if you're going to be able to translate this, and if you're going to be able to dictate to someone these stories, you have to stop and think about it. Yeah. And you have to th you have to consider it. You have to ponder it. You have to wait for inspira inspiration and spiritual confirmation that what you're thinking is true. And then you speak. And 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 so apparently Oliver just looked at the seer stone and said, "How come I don't see words?" Or 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 he looked at the seer stone and said, "You know, the words aren't coming." And Joseph Smith was because you know you're not doing it the right way. And so what this suggests, though, is that for Joseph Smith, he would have had that preparation done where he had studied things out in his mind, where he had received confirmation, whatever that was, of what that he was dictating was true and accurate. But, yes. but that's not what was happening during the dictation itself. He was just spilling out the words. And, and this... All scripture given of God, that is, it's also, he, Joseph Smith's words about translation uh, echoed that scripture in Timothy that it's going to come from, that inspiration is going to come from God. And so the question is then, when was that preparation time and how much preparation time would there be for Joseph Smith to study it out in his mind? So this is what um, I'm offering in the book. Um, normally when I did this, 
things would come up one piece of information at a time so it didn't oh, come is... bombarded <laughs> <laughs> everyone just looked at it one bit at a time so just to explain this diagram so here we have kind of the red um, spine along there 1823 1824 going across through 1829 those are the years that encompass the translation time period so in 1823 in September, that's when Joseph Smith first told his family about the existence of the Book of Mormon. And we know that he knew quite a bit then because he did say later that when he spoke to the angel Moroni, that Moroni was telling him about the governments that were there. There's learning about you know, everything from the clothing they were, the animals. But, but even there's more specific in the Wentworth letter where he's going into details about... Um, the governments and that sort of thing, but he did receive, he had to have known at least a very general outline because the angel Moroni told him, this is about an ancient people who um, followed Christ and fell away and were destroyed. And so you have the outline of the whole Book of Mormon from the very beginning, if what Joseph Smith said were accurate, then he had an, a general idea at the very least of the shape of the Book of Mormon from the very beginning. So during that time, from the time when he starts to first translate the 116 pages, he's had four years of preparation. And that's four years. And what I'm suggesting is that that's a time with his seer stone or through prayer or through meditation that he would be able to start exploring. And I call this part of the translation process of trying to figure out what these ancient narratives were. And he had a seer stone that could tell him the past, the present, and the future. So you could use that seer stone to peer into the past and see these stories, even to peer into the Hill Cumorah and see the plates if he wanted to, in order to prepare for that time when he would actually dictate and translate the Book of Mormon. And so what I'm suggesting is during those four years, he was thinking about the stories of the ancient Native Americans, what the story of this nation was, waiting for spiritual confirmation to say, aha, that would, this is true, and then piecing together these skeletal outlines, not writing out the book. And that some of those outlines we can still see today in the 1830 Book of Mormon and the newer ones, as long as you know which ones are modern, which ones aren't. Now the 116 pages got lost and so there was still a period of time when, you know, you have to go back and say, Ooh, some of these outlines I'm going to have to maybe adjust. And, but there he would have had a little bit of practice at doing this translation process. It's around this time when, when he first started, it seems like he was trying different things that weren't working. Sometimes there was a curtain between him and Martin. Uh, he was, sometimes he was looking at the, Urim and Thummim that he got with the interpreters, but then, and, and so it's kind of, or using the seer stone or, or trying something else. But then finally, uh, when he starts the Book of Mormon proper, that's when Emma Smith and, and I believe David Whitmer too, but they said that's when he just started using the seer stone from there on out. And there's debate on whether or not he actually exclusively used the seer stone. I think he did or if he used the stones for the interpreter again. Um, but ultimately that by that time, when he actually started 
to dictate what we have today as the Book of Mormon, then he would have had at least five and a half years of preparation time and practice time and for any further revisions. Okay. That's and a for a believer, time. yeah, for a believer, you just say, look, this, the evidence indicates that um, this could be part of Joseph's translation process. When you pull all the scriptures, all the dictation out, all the evidence together, this is this kind of explanation for Joseph Smith's translation process, you know, it checks the boxes. It, it gives him time to study it out in his mind. He's not just doing it improvisationally. Um, the, the text and the evidence shows that this is something that was spoken into existence, not something that was written into existence. Um, and this would also, that amount of time would also give him the time and preparation he needed with his limited education and limited background to be able to produce and translate this great work. And then on the other side of the coin is that people who believe that it was Joseph Smith's composition, well, obviously there's time for him to do that too. Yeah. So, but it, 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 it's a way of relook, rethinking the translation process. Um, and it's one that people can look at and hopefully not feel threatened. The people who have been threatened by this, it's usually not because, because I don't attack beliefs here, but I think people have their personal opinions of how they wanted the translation to be. And so even if it's just their own personal theory, when you have your theory kind of attacked, um, some people respond as if they're defending the faith when in fact they're just defending their personal desired viewpoint. And so I hope people will stop and think that, you know, if some of this sounds difficult against my opinions about how it happened, realize that there are other ways to look about look at it within a believing paradigm and that your world doesn't have to fall apart. It just, you might need to start expanding the envelope a little bit. Yeah. And I think uh, another important thing to understand is the fact that today, by 21st century standards for someone to sit and dictate any book in a two-month period um, seems a big job but at the time yeah. we've shown obviously that it was a very oral society and that this mm -hmm. is the way that these things happened uh, but I know you said in the past if it was 60 to 65 days why did it take that long yeah yeah, and, and the reason why I say that is if if Joseph Smith really were looking at words on a stone, okay, then that means there's no work to be done other than transcribing. Yeah. And you can transcribe really fast when that's the case. And um, this doing it in about a 60-day time frame, it would just be too long for someone who is just dictating pre-written words and the reason why i say that is because you can look at people who were skilled at telling long narratives um and the one person who i've talked about is um when uh avdo methodovic and he was uh uh he would sing these songs it's it, milman perry and albert lord were two scholars who wanted to understand homer 
better in the text of Homer. So they, they said, you know, is it possible that there are living oral traditions that have comparable techniques going on, even though we're not going to find the same thing? And so he went out and they started looking at the uh, some Serbo-Croatian uh, Muslim singers who would tell these long epic stories. And, and in particular, this one guy who was talented at it. So there are a lot of people who were good, but this one guy in particular was awesome. His name was Avdo Methodovic. And, and he, um, when I went in and I looked at the pace at which he was, he dictated his stories uh, to Milman Perry and Albert Lord, as well as their assistants. And uh, he was completely illiterate. He couldn't read or write. So all of this was completely in his mind. And uh, he was dictating at a pace that was twice as fast as Joseph Smith. Wow. And so if Avdo had been dictating the Book of Mormon, then it probably he would have probably been able to produce it in about 30 days to 35 days, is my guess. And wow. so that's... That tells us a little bit, I think, about Joseph Smith and that he's not a, this skilled um, singer of this other cultural style, obviously, that there was some hesitancy perhaps still there. Um, but the real question then, it, 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 that's why I just kind of postulate, well, the question is not how come he did it so fast, but the real question is how come it took him so long? And I think it's just because there were a lot of other concerns. He had to probably take more breaks and rest. And then there are things around the house he probably had to do. So, Well, I'll but, push yeah. back slightly. So I, th sure. I think we're, get we're getting to the point now of tight translation, loose translation. Tight translation yeah. would be supported by Emma and Martin Whitmer in their quotations to mm. say uh, he would pick up and put down word for word kind of during breaks. I need to, okay. uh, I'll get it right. After meals or after interruptions, Joseph would at once begin where he had left off without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin, we'll go yeah, so what I would say about that is even though people are using that for an example of tight control, um, I would say that's not a good example of tight control because we have examples of people who are also doing a kind of mystical production of what they described as scripture or at least inspired work where they would finish a session, walk away, come back and do the next session without referring to earlier notes or manuscripts. And uh, one of the ladies who did that uh, was Pearl Curran. Uh, when she produced some of her works, it was the late 1800s and early 1900s when she was alive. Um, she's someone who did that. But another person who I've written about is and a guy named Andrew Jackson Davis. And he was known as the Poughkeepsie Seer. He also grew up in New York. Um, he was born, uh, you know, a couple decades after Joseph Smith. When Joseph Smith was doing the the translation of the Book of Mormon, Andrew Jackson Davis was a little boy living in the Hudson River Valley. And he did the same thing. He he didn't have any notes that anybody saw. He didn't have any materials. In fact, when he did his translation, instead of looking at a seer stone, he would put a blindfold on. He claimed to be in trance. We don't know for sure. 
if he was actually in trance. And even then, who knows what his trance was because he described at least five different stages or types of trance that he was in. And so it simply could have been him describing putting on the blindfold as giving him a chance to, you know, just clear out distractions and concentrate. And, but he would do that too. So he would, if, if there was ever a moment when he stopped and I think what he would do is he'd normally do uh, an entire lecture, they called him uh, at a time. But if there were any time he had to stop between lectures uh, or at the start and end, he never, he said, and the people around him who watched him said that he never looked back to figure out where he was in order to keep going forward. Okay. Well, so yeah. Tight translation again, David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses. Mm -hmm. I will now give you a description of the manner in which the Book of Mormon was translated. Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it cr closely around his face to exclude the light. And in the darkness, the spiritual light would shine a piece of something resembling parchment would appear and on that appeared the writing one character at a time would appear and under it was the interpretation in english brother joseph would read off the english to oliver cowdery who was a principal scribe and when it was written down and repeated to brother joseph to see if it was correct then it would disappear and another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus, the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God and not by any power of man. Okay, so this is one of the great ones. Um, there's a lot of things to say about this, but first of all, who else saw the words appear on the stone? You know? Yeah. So... The only way that that could be correct is if Joseph described in detail that description of the process to David Whitmer, right? And that's the, that's one of the challenges we have because David Whitmer is not the only one who said that. There are other people who made similar statements. Part of the problem is you don't know if someone's statement is independent or if they've been influenced by what someone else said a couple of years earlier. Um, but the fact of the matter is that they're making these descriptions without actually having seen it themselves all they would witness is joseph smith having his head in the hat and so using them as a resource you have to you have to say you know and and when did these start to be said and they're usually late reminiscences and um and i think what's happening here is that people are trying to make sense of how Joseph Smith did it. Why did he need to put his head in the hat? Um, and then when you look at that in connection with what was known about seer stones at the time, when you look at the Bible commentaries, when you look at the dictionaries, uh, Calmet's dictionary, for example, goes into detail. And, and, and it, actually a few years before Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon, there was a front page issue in one of the Rochester newspapers where all they did is talk about how the Urimum Thummim worked by having the stones would shine and characters would rise up to the surface to give uh, the prophecy uh, to the priests who were looking at it. And so I think what happened, uh, because early on, Joseph Smith didn't even refer to it as a Urimum Thummim. And Moroni, when Moroni says here, you're being given a Urim Thummim in order to interpret the work, that was a later interpret 
interpolation because um, they didn't start using the term Urim and Thummim until, oh, it was like about 1831. And so what happened is once people started referring to the seer stone as a Urim and Thummim, and then after that is when people start describing how the seer stone work in relation to a Urim and Thummim. But they weren't describing it that way before that connection had been made. Now, to be fair, the historical record is really slim at that period, and so we don't have a lot of explicit references. But but we definitely don't have anyone saying the Yermum Thummum worked or the seer stone worked by glowing stones until long after the seer stone had been um, connected to a Yermum Thummum. And after it had been connected to a Yermum Thummum, then people said, oh, this is how a Yermum Thummum works according to the Bible. So this must have been the way it worked for Joseph. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Joseph never said how it worked. Some people said Joseph told me it worked this way, but he actually, we don't have anything that says how it worked. And here's the other thing, and this is what I kind of mentioned in the book to kind of problematize that as well. What if Joseph Smith said, well, I'm not seeing words on the stone. Um, I'm, this is just, the stone is, helps me gain access to the spiritual confirmations that I had before. But in reality, um, I spent the last five years creating these outlines. What would yeah. people have said? People yeah. would say, what? If you, you look at my little it? pocketbook. Yeah, and, and then he'd have to go, oh, now I have to explain. No, I didn't prefabricate it. I mean, these were all things I received through inspiration. And from the Holy Ghost, they'd still say, ah, bah humbug. So, you know, it is possible that trying to explain to people how complex and involved his translation work actually was might have been too much for people so who knows maybe he did say um, yeah sure i saw the words on a stone meat you know milk before meat yeah and that and that's the the what i reference in the the book too you know it, they can't take the whole truth so you just give them what they need okay i saw the words on a stone that's good enough what's important is that you treat this as scripture and you learn from it who cares maybe in his mind exactly. that's that's yeah. how he that's how he thinks he sees the sees the words and he sees that as second sight and that's induced by the stone being in the bottom of the hat and the smells yeah. of the hat and whatever it might be you know um Okay, a couple more, I think, to push back on. Um, sure. In favor of the Book of Mormon. This is uh, uncharted territory for me in the last few years. In favor of the Book of Mormon, we have chiasmus. Mm -hmm. Hebrew, Hebrew um, style of writing. How could Joseph include or, you know, speak in that way when it was, uh, I guess, an ancient Hebrew way of speaking mm -hmm. well uh, what's really critical about knowing about chiasmus and this this actually is one of the topics what first got me into scholarship in the first place um clear back in the early 90s it was introduced to me uh by someone who uh was doing scriptural translation i actually was too uh back in a former life and since that time, I've been looking at chiasmus, not only in the Book of Mormon and not only in the Bible, but I started spreading out and looking at chiasmus everywhere else I could find it. And, and what 
we have when we're looking at chiastic structures is oftentimes there are people using complex chiastic structures who don't even know they're using them. Okay. Can you give and us an example? Yeah, um, I, I wrote an essay um, where I give examples that people could actually go see. But earlier I talked about uh, the Sierra Poughkeepsie in New York named Andrew Jackson Davis. He produced this work the same way that Joseph Smith did. In other words, he would give a sentence and then he had a scribe. The scribe would write it down and say it back to him before he moved on to the next sentence. So it was almost a duplication of what Joseph Smith was doing. Well, Andrew Jackson's Davis text, when you go through and look through that, he has phenomenal examples of complex chiasmus. He has examples of complex chiasmus that are as large, if not larger, than Alma 36, which is supposed to be this great pinnacle of chiastic structure in the Book of Mormon. And, and he's not the only one. We, we find it all over the place. Um, there's in not, the Doctrine and Covenants as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People have found it in the Doctrine and Covenants. But, even, but what ultimately what it's coming down to is people kick out chiastic structures almost as a default position of the cognitive architecture within people's minds and how they process information. Okay. And, and when you look, and so I've looked at people, for example, I've, I've, I published two or three papers on Shakespeare's use of complex chiasmus and Shakespeare used it not only to organize the real small ones, but large ones that would cover entire speeches, entire scenes. And sometimes he used it to structure entire plays. And in Shakespeare's case, you can look at how someone who's intentionally using it, how precise it can be, how one or two phrases, a, a, a single phrase or a parallelism matches another parallelism across the board and how it's very precise when it gets to the pinnacle and down to the beginning again. But when you look at the ones in the Book of Mormon, especially when they start getting longer, there's a lot of repetition, but all of a sudden there's a bunch of ideas getting injected in there to where in order to create a chiasm, you can't trust the text to do it for itself. You have to have someone come in and start to choose. Oh, we include this as part of the structure, but we exclude that and that and that, and then we include this. So when you look, for example, when you look at um, what's been done on Alma 36 and uh, Jack Welsh, uh, I'm going to blank on all the names, but Grant Hardy and then um, um, another gentleman who I should remember his name more than anybody else because he's he's done so much wonderful work. But all of them structure Alma 36 slightly differently. Now, if you have a if you have a structure that is definite and clear, it doesn't matter who approaches it. You're going to come out with the same structure. But we don't. Why not? And it's because some of it. It's a little too ambiguous to stick in one place or another. And sometimes you'll have one phrase balanced with another phrase in their examples. But if you go and look at the text, it's this really short phrase balanced by a huge chunk of text where it's riddled with ideas. And what that means is there's cherry picking going on. That means they're in, they have a shape and structure of chiasmus that they want to see, and they're imposing it on the text and forcing the text. Yeah. So where it fits, they show you, and where it doesn't fit, they cut it away. And yeah. the, the complex chiasm that we see in Alma 36, now, from my point of view, it does in fact follow a chiastic 
shape, but it's filled with the kinds of repetition um, that points to an origin of something that was not written out and planned, but something that was spoken without a lot of conscious knowledge of the fact that that type of shaping was even taking place. It's a type of unconscious chiasm that I see a lot in works by people who don't don't know that they're creating a complex chiasm. Okay. So that's so and and then it, even though people call it a Hebrew structure, these are structures I see in virtually every language and text that I've I've studied um, that come from around the world. And it's mostly English, obviously, but I've seen this also in some of the oral traditions of other cultures, where they also have what they call a ring composition where they kind of have a tendency to do this. Homer had a tendency to do this in the overall structures. So it's, it's, not, it's not something specific to Hebrew. And, and then the ones in the Book of Mormon tend to be a little too ambiguous, too much repetition to point to someone who is intentionally, I mean, seriously, I mean, it, it, it sounds like I might be joking, but it's true. If, if, if Alma 36, were in fact a conscious literary construction, then, then Alma wasn't paying attention in class when he learned about chiasmus, because it's not a good one to, to show how precise and how um, technically uh, impressive they can be. It, it, it's, it's too ambiguous. It's not, I wouldn't, it's been called a literary masterpiece, but it's not a masterpiece of chiasmus. It's interesting as a spoken sample, but not a literary. So I think what we're coming around to is that obviously we're, we're not saying whether the Book of Mormon is right or wrong at this point. What we're saying is that the structure of the Book of Mormon, uh, the home culture society culture and education that we've explored um in the past couple of hours would lead us to believe that it wasn't a tight translation that it was a loose translation where joseph may have thought that he was receiving some kind of revelation but he'd studied out in his mind over the last five and a half years a um complex kind of uh, list of, of heads, a skeleton of this society. He'd speak about it as Mother Smith would quote, that he'd tell them the stories at night, that he'd gone through this and he'd, he'd thought it through very carefully and that then possibly we know that the, the preachers and orators of the day, as we've demonstrated would keep their um, heads of sermons very concisely in a small pocketbook and that possibly Joseph Smith could have had a very similar thing. Um, as you said earlier, he was training to become a, a Methodist preacher, so would have been used to that kind of training, that kind of process. Uh, so a loose translation that took advantage of those things. And who knows if the scribes saw that he had a pocketbook. I know that 
um, something we'd not spoken about was Emma's quote saying that there there weren't any manuscripts and, and different things. Um, but we won't go there right now, but that was speaking directly about the Spalding manuscript and mm-hmm. uh, kind of yeah, discounting. Just, yeah, just briefly about that. The context of what she said and also the follow-up, there is a letter that her son who did the interview, Joseph Smith the third said is specifically talking about a manuscript either by Solomon Spalding or some other manuscript of a romance or a novel. They are saying that that was not used. And people have expanded to say, well, I, I guess there couldn't have been a Bible there either, but they're not talking about a Bible. To include a Bible is, is it, it's a logical fallacy of overgeneralization. You're saying he didn't, he wasn't referring to any kind of book. There was nothing between us like this manuscript, this spalling thing. And when you read the text and what she's saying, it's not even clear that she would even have thought that, oh, I wasn't referring to a Bible. There's never a reference to that. And the other thing about that too, is I, I, I really think that this is the sort of thing that Joseph Smith would have kept in his private papers. And I really doubt that he, I really doubt that there was any kind of slip of paper in the bottom of the hat. I don't think that is true. I don't think he even had a slip of paper in a Bible next to him. I think this is the sort of thing that he would just spend time, think about, see what was next in his private papers and close it up and put it away and then just let the spirit or his feelings, whatever, take over so that when he was doing the translation, he was free from everything but his thoughts and his mind. So, yeah. But the, um, what I'm saying, though, is the historical references don't actually contradict that process. It only happens when people try to read too much into the historical documents than what's actually there. Okay. And we've we've got a question from uh, Robert Williams, who has been with us all evening. Thank you, Robert. And he's asked a few questions, and I know he really wants to get this one across to you. And it's about... Okay. Um, when he's in this, I guess, revelatory process, uh, he, uh, Yankee colloquialisms, uh, mm-hmm. is what we're talking about here about Yankee colloquialisms finding their way into the text that I guess wouldn't have been anywhere else. Something he mentions here a journeying or there were all mm-hmm. types of ites. Um, yeah. Being the, another the one, example. Yeah. Like for example, a journeying, um, even though that was a common type of non-standard English that we would find in upstate New York. And you, 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 even today you can find it along the Appalachia, um, the communities along the Appalachian trail, but that's something that you also find back in England and especially in some of the early earlier writings and so that's something that was inherited through you know kind of that english speaking diaspora of languages so so it's interesting because to try to pinpoint a time period for that well just a couple things in terms of pinpointing the time period that, that's something that um would have been inherited from the english speaking coming across from britain in the first place um so we can't really pinpoint it, but that's the sort of thing that does look like Joseph Smith's dialect showing up in the text of the Book of Mormon. 
um, even though it can be earlier. But something that's more specific too is when you look at when like King Benjamin goes off on these long revivalistic uh, sermons, there's language happening in there that was happening in uh, the first and second great awakenings in America and also over in Britain um, that even kind of pinpoints it more to a more modern type of language that's being used in order uh -huh. to convey these ideas. And so what's happening in the Book of Mormon, is it, it really is a mixture. It's not strictly early modern English, but there are elements of early modern English in there, not just because of the King James language, but because there was a lot of early, there are a lot of books written with early modern English that were still widely read and in circulation in Joseph Smith's time. But then you also have uh, the King James, and then you also have uh, some of these modern idioms and phrases also popping in. Okay. And so it's a mixture. It's a hodgepodge, and, okay. which to me points again to uh, Joseph Smith as the translator, or the speaker, or the formulator of these words. Um, okay. Whether or not people believe it's inspired or not, that's where it points. I hope that answers. No, it, it does. It does. And I think that's the the point that Robert was making. Um, he says he's a creative genius. Um walks past stones in Missouri and says, this is Adam's altar. <laughs> you know, if simple stones can uh, can bring that to you, then anything can. But uh, we're going to wrap up in a minute. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you for your kind of closing conclusion, not about the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, but about uh, tight or loose translation and where you feel that the Book of Mormon came from um but before we get there the next question i know does speak to some of your future research um so we mm -hmm. don't want to step on those toes but something that i know kind of has done the rounds has been this whole idea that there are distinct voices within the text of these prophets from um ancient times so distinct voices of king benjamin or of zenith or alma and that they mm. uh, you know how how would joseph smith switch from one to another and keep up with that you know it's, it's impossible mm -hmm. well i wouldn't say it's impossible <laughs> but um <laughs> okay going back to the first one tight or loose translation um, I really think that the idea of tight translation or Joseph Smith was simply a passive instrument that read words off the surface of a seer stone. Um, I see that theory and it is a theory. I see that theory falling out of favor, um, especially as more and more studies are done on the text. Um, it just it, it it's harder and harder to support that now my personal point of view is that it's definitely a loose translation and also definitely joseph smith was involved in that process and then as far as how much or how little he's involved i'd leave that up to people's beliefs yeah. but so yeah in, in terms of that side of taking sides it definitely loose translation to my mind um by far has the strongest evidence supporting 
um, the distinct voices. Now, you know, I've read, I'll try to be quick about this, but I don't know how quick I can be because there's different things going on. For example, when people say there's a distinct voice, then sometimes they start describing what the person is fixated on or what they're talking about, right? So it's not a stylistic thing. It's rather a material thing, the content of what they're talking about. But you have to ask yourself, is that voice distinct because there is a particular persona or character behind it? Or is that voice distinct in this moment in the story because the story demands this type of content? And, and so what I'm saying is um, maybe Alma sounds different from Nephi, but the circumstances in which Nephi was talking are different than the circumstances in the narrative for Alma. So they're going to be focused on different topics and they're going to be focused on different concerns. And that means you're going to have different vocabulary coming up. And you're also going to have a different fixation on the needs for the narrative itself. So then are people driving the narrative or is the narrative driving the voices of the people? Okay. And that's one aspect that's not being fully explored. So there might be two people who sound very different produced by the same writer or translator, but they're different because of the needs of the story, not because there's some sort of difference in their particular styles. The next thing that that's related to, if we talk specifically about style, okay, and this is, this is getting a little bit more into some of the research that I hope to produce. Um, and we, we did touch on it a little bit earlier how um, with the computer studies and trying to analyze uh, the differences between people. Um, I don't think we have the data analysis um, techniques fully developed yet that can offer the kind of separation of distinct voices that people claim that we can. Um, we're, we're not far enough along yet. And, and I'll, and I'll just, I'll just say one thing. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go off into the woods with that one by trying to give examples. But when you look at the text of the Book of Mormon, okay, here's just a general thing. When you look at stylometry or also word print studies, those are, they, those have a particular focus in mind. And that focus is trying to in, identify an individual's particular style. Right. But when we look at the text of the Book of Mormon, the text of the Book of Mormon is so deeply infused with the language of other people, specifically the King James version, for example. It's so deeply infused that you can't extract the King James language out of the Book of Mormon without collapsing the Book of Mormon itself. And so a lot of times when you're looking uh, with a computer at the text of the Book of Mormon and pulling out something that says this is Joseph Smith's style. It in fact is showing you this is the style of the King James translators that Joseph Smith happens to have used in the process of articulating the Book of Mormon. So it doesn't really tell us what Joseph Smith's style is. As an individual, it tells us what his 
scripture language or Bible language style is, which is a composite of earlier styles that he has latched onto. So because of that problem, um, the, the current studies in my mind do not yet have the capacity to really separate truly individual voices in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And until, until that problem is fixed, uh, it's going to be a problem. No, fantastic. Um, Tom Trails brings up a very good point. Um, first of all, thank you, Tom, for your contribution. I will raise a drink in your honor and um, I'll send you Priest of Dispatch's badge like a Blue Peter badge. Um, but his point's a really good one. So if we move from tight translation, so we all know that in the introduction to the Book of Mormon, it states, and this is in, you speak about this in your book as well, it states that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on the earth. Um, and I know, Bill, you don't want to go into what's what's going on there, but Tom just points out um, that uh, that B.H. Roberts was the beginning of the evolution of the loose translation, looking at all these things. And I know you speak about that in the book as well, Bill. But as well that there were lots of prophets who spoke about the fact that every word in the Book of Mormon, you know, they they really latched onto the tight translation. And there's been <laughs> this evolution slowly, slowly, slowly. And as you say, I think it will become, it's like turning a cruise ship or a tanker by degree. And I think that will happen. But the more that that happens, the less value possibly there is in the Book of Mormon. I'm not asking you to agree or disagree with that. Mm -hmm. um, but what I mean is kind of like, do the words lose some of their impact? if they could be this or they could be that when they had, when it was every word is the word of God and every word is the words of that ancient prophet. They had that punch, that impact, that kind of, this is it. And if you don't understand it, that's your fault because that's the word of God and it's correct. Whereas if it's kind of like, well, that was where Joseph was going at that time, or that thing was happening in his life about infant baptism or whatever it might be. Kind of becomes a little bit wishy-washy. Um, I, I don't want to put you on either side of the argument. I'm just pointing out what Tom's saying yeah. here. Um, well, well, I think those are maybe a couple of different topics, at least I think of it is to they're kind of related first about loose translation and with bh roberts um bh roberts i think was really kind of ahead of his time and his analysis of the book of mormon he raised a lot of questions that eventually everybody jerked back from and then after him there, there were more leaders of the church who started to double down more and more on on the more literalist you know dogmatic type thing and then uh but I, but I think the, the tight translation really 
kind of it was kind of in between not really a central issue but until i think royal skousen's work came out where he was looking through and then trying to reconcile the historical record of what people were claiming to have seen with things that he's seeing in the text not just in the text but in the manuscripts the types of corrections that were made and whatnot and so uh skousen then from that point was saying that he believed in the tight control and so then it became uh, kind of a rallying cry for a certain group that wanted something really tight and really secure but not everybody even in the church was on board with that there's still people who are saying but you know there's uh there's a lot of evidence and suggesting that joseph smith um had more freedom than that that he wasn't just a, a spout through which you know the yermum thummim or god poured words through and but so i think there was a time when it shifted from kind of the bh roberts but long before Skousen kind of buckled down not just on language but even just the whole idea that joseph smith could have even been capable of doing something like this and then the tight control but as you go there there I, I i'm seeing more evidence that people are starting to realize and even from an apologetic point of view tight control gets harder and harder to explain because you start having to do a lot of mental gymnastics to explain well why are why are there errors from the King James Version translation or the 17, what, 1769 version of the translation cropping up in the Book of Mormon? They shouldn't be there. I mean, if God was in charge of putting all the words through here, then how come he's including errors? And then you start to ask questions about, well, what does that say about the nature and character of God? If God's perfect, then why is he intentionally doing a mistake? And then pretty soon, uh, questions about the traits of God uh, are called into question where God is not the omniscient you know, perfect human being anymore. And you can have your whole system of belief in a certain type of God collapse because you're so concerned about the tight control versus Luke's control. I mean, you can take it that far on the pathway. And and then and then to say things like, oh, Nephi in 600 BC looked forward and he was able to analyze the paratextual features and headings of a Bible and then structured his works in order to match that. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for 19th century readers, even though it's not really necessary. Yeah, I mean, pretty soon you're going through all kinds of, it, it, you, you push all of those theories to the limit and you start to, it's, it just creates all kinds of mental gymnastics that are not necessary. Whereas if you have Joseph Smith as a translator, who's participating in that process, then anytime you have these types of anachronisms, you can say, well, this obviously, because we have a 19th century translator, that this is coming into it. Now, it's not that easy. You can't dismiss everything that easily, but it sure makes life a lot easier if you're an apologist. If holding on to that tight translation just starts, it starts to, well, it's difficult to continue that. So that's my opinion on that. But the other thing you're saying, what about these changes? What about these alterations? If, if, if God, if this is the most correct book on earth, then how come there have been so many corrections or changes and alterations? And, you know, um, I just think that the, the way that people, and perhaps the way that it was intended was not, this is the most grammatically correct book on earth, but rather, 
the most correct in its ideas, the most correct in its expressions of doctrine, the most correct in its expressions of how God works and how the universe operates. And I think that's what it means. So you can monkey around with some of the language all, all you want, provided that those ideas behind them are, are what remain intact. Joseph Smith himself in the Doctrine and Covenants was talking about one of the Malachi scriptures, and I can't remember for sure what it was, but he was saying that when he had done the Joseph Smith revision of the Bible, he said, oh, I could have rendered this you know, another way, but this was fine, this suited. And so what he's saying is the, the idea was there and the idea could have been expressed one of several ways, but this, the idea stays consistent. And um, I've worked in translation. And so, um, you know, you run across the same thing where you're working on a text, you're saying, what's the best way to express this? We can be literal about it or too literal and then the target audience doesn't understand what's said or or you can adjust it and it doesn't say exactly what the original said but the audience is going to get the best gist of the meaning by this change and you usually have three or four or five options that you could do in a translation in order to try to communicate that idea from one language to another so yeah whether whether there's adjustments most of the corrections that were made of the book of mormon are negligible um, some are not uh, when the identity of um, Christ or God is switched in some of the early corrections, then you have to start to wonder what what was happening at that time and where was Joseph with his understanding of theology at that time that yeah. that he that would cause him to do that. Which which version of the first vision was he on at that point? But yeah, first vision's there. another one. We, we won't go there. We won't go there. Right. <laughs> We're, we're going to wrap it up. Um, I think we've had a great couple of hours. And for Priest of Dispatches, this is our longest um, episode that we've done. We don't usually go this long, but I think we had so much good stuff uh, to pack Sorry. in there. No, 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 no. That was, it's, it's been amazing. Uh, and the book's fantastic. Uh, Visions in a Seer Stone. There's a link to that on Amazon uh, down in the description below. And Bill give you uh, a chance if there's anything else you want to say um right now but thank no, you I'm, no i i really appreciate it and i just i just hope in these strange times in the world everybody stays safe out there and and no, uh, be careful of the covid and be safe for yourselves and your family wear a mask get vaccine i know it's controversial but please please do not just for yourself but for your families and loved ones yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, announcements at this end. Next week, we have the fantastic Priest of Dispatchers Ward Christmas Party that you're all invited to. Uh, we'll have some fantastic activities. And just today, I've finished editing the Ex-Mormon Nativity, which is five minutes of a different take on the Nativity um, that I think people will enjoy or i hope you'll enjoy um if not uh, you'll enjoy it but yeah quizzes and there's an elf on the shelf competition where you can win yourself a five dollar amazon voucher big spender right here um but that's about the price of a box of chocolates um so anywhere in the world i'll email that out to you if you send me your elf on the shelf photos we've got a few good ones in uh but there's still time 
and send us pictures of your worst Christmas jumper. Uh, so that is on Tuesday, the 21st of December. It's 7.30 uh, GMT. If you're elsewhere in the world, you'll be able to catch it live, but also it'll be on the channel for you to watch afterwards and share with your friends. Thank you, everyone who has been here this evening. Uh, we've had many people in and out, and thank you just so much, Bill, uh, for what you're doing. Well, and as well, you. there, I've spoken to Bill um, the other night. We spoke for about three hours. Uh, and the work that you're doing, I was thinking today how I could put this. I would genuinely say that the next piece of work that you're working on will fill in so many gaps and will could could be up there with on it the church leaders say that they've heard it all before that there's no new arguments no new information um that we're just going over and over again but what you're doing study or working on now is new and i'm not saying which side so. of the which side it falls on but it will be new to them yeah. it will be a different take and it will be unarguable it's uh, in in the fact of kind of scientifically and forensically it will stand up to criticism and i can't wait to see it hopefully you will join us again when that work comes out and we can discuss it and we can give the church leaders something new to think about. Yeah, nice it's all way. positive. Believers or non-believers, I think it's information that, yeah, that will yeah. help people appreciate Joseph Smith even more. And I think I think for the, the thing things is, he did. Yeah. It's um I'm not speaking of a silver bullet, I'm speaking of something new yeah. um for people yeah. to to take in and think about in a slightly different way but thank you very much uh thank you for everyone that's been with us this evening and um after the christmas party we will take a slight break for christmas and new year everyone to recover um from all the partying in january we've already got lined up margaret toscano to come and speak to us about mother in heaven if there are any pressing questions that you have about mother in heaven get them into war office at priesthooddispatchers.com. If there are any questions you have about tonight, you can also send them to that email and I'll pass them on to Bill. And yeah, we, we have some really good things lined up for January. I'm going to end it now because I'm just going on about anything and everything. Thank you guys. And we'll see you next Thank time. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right.